Opinion Battlegrounds with Terence Fane Saunders, brought to you by Chelgate, International Strategic Issues Management Consultants. Welcome to Opinion Battlegrounds. My name is Terence Fane Saunders. I'm Executive Chairman of Chelgate, an international public relations, public affairs and issues management consultancy. And sitting in with me today to discuss the Opinion Battlegrounds are my guests, Liam Herbert, who's the Chief Executive of Chelgate and a renowned expert in communications and crisis management. In his time, Liam has run PR businesses and headed the PR for some world-renowned brands. And on the crisis management front, you could probably call him a seasoned and leathery old warrior. For example, he led communications with the City of London Police during the London bombings in 2005. Welcome, Leathery Leon. <laughs> <laughs> leathery, marvellous. Thank you very much, Terence. And also with us today is Drew Manns, another Chelgate colleague. Actually, Dr. Drew Manns. And I should mention that Drew's doctorate was actually in uh, the study of propaganda dating right back to the, what, 17th century, Drew? Yes. Into the 17th century. And so you will also gather when you hear more of Drew that he has a transatlantic accent. He is actually an American. And that can be enormously valuable to us because we want the international perspective. And so, Drew, it's great having you with us too. Great to be here. You know... It's actually a little frightening, isn't it? We're in an age of reconstructed truth and manufactured reality. People used to depend on traditional media for their news and information. Today, they're turning to social media. And there, in their echo chambers of like-minded opinion, they're sheltered from facts, news, and information that might disturb their little biases and beliefs. Whatever you think of our old-fashioned media, most of them applied some form of fact-checking. With social media, that doesn't happen. In an age of fake facts, bots, trolls and manufactured outrage, we're seeing reality reconstructed and that gives great power to people who know how to play the game. There's a war on. It's a war for your opinion. And we are going to be examining the battleground. We'll be talking about stories in the headlines, campaigns, arguments, controversies. We won't tell you who we agreed with. That really doesn't matter. We're more interested in how they pitched their case. Who won? Who lost? Why? If someone gave a great speech, stormed an interview, ran a magnificent campaign, managed a hurricane of opinion across the Twitter sphere, we'll be talking about them and how they did it. But if they flopped, if their interview was a disaster, if their campaign failed horribly, if their message was utterly lost, well, that won't escape the beady eyes of the Opinion Battlegrounds team either. No, the pain is not over. We're going to dig right into the entrails of that failure. Where did they go wrong? How badly did they mess up? And if that means being cruel to people we love or praising low-life reptiles that we despise, then that's how it will be. Opinion Battlegrounds is not about who was right and who was wrong. It's about how well they pitched their case. So, perhaps unavoidably, today we are going to be talking about Friday's prime ministerial debate between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. In an earlier podcast, we dissected the earlier clash. So, 
Was this very different? Did it make a difference? Or should we all have gone to the pub? It was Friday evening, after all. But then let's broaden the discussion. Finally, we've almost reached the end of the election campaign. Do I hear you say, thank God? So, we're going to talk about who won and how. Again, this is not about who we agree with. It's about the tactics, the strategies, the messages. And yes, I know that Thursday's result may make fools of us all. But judging by the last election, we'd be in very good company. So let's declare the winner in advance. And then finally, maybe a brief word about an argument possibly lost. You may have read that the Apostrophe Protection Society has given up the ghost. They have surrendered admitted defeat. The poor little punctuation mark has lost the battle. Or has it? We'll see. Gentlemen, in any case, welcome. Liam, who won Friday's debate? I don't think anyone won, but it's more a case of who didn't lose. Mm -hmm. And I think the the change from the first time they met um, it was marked because it was even by the standards of those of us who watch quite a lot of politics, it was quite a dull evening. There was a lot of mess sticking to messages. There was a lot of playing exactly to the line. And the, the challenge at the outset was that, um, that Corbyn had to make an impact if he wanted to make an impact on, on the electorate. Um, I don't think that really came across at all. Uh, but neither did Boris then actually stand up and, and make a mess of things either. He, they were all very controlled and it's probably one of the most polite debates that we've had throughout the entire period. I'm In a way, both both are said by many people to have performed better. Yes. Yeah. Just practice makes. And, and, I, and I guess the polite thing was also important because one of the marks of the the multi leader debates they've had is they've been very acrimonious and there's mm. been a lot of shouting and, and challenging across there without any kind of reasoned argument. And there was a much more much more structured approach to this one. Which probably didn't really help the Labour Party if they had to close the gap. Uh, Drew, how did you see it? I agree. I think it was rather boring. <laughs> I think of the two, Johnson did seem more animated. You know, he was grabbing onto the lectern and he would give his lots of hand gestures and things. And Corbyn seemed more, interestingly enough, he sounded, he seemed uh, angrier. He seemed more reserved. Um, but again, he, 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 he tends to be like that. And, 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 uh, but in, in this case, I would say that if I were to, if, I were, if you were to hold the gun to my head and, and force me to choose, I'd say definitely uh, Johnson performed better in this case. It was for Johnson to lose as well. Um, and, and, and we've seen throughout the campaign that he's been kept as, on as tight a leash as possible. But equally, um, Corbyn has very long held very passionate beliefs, whereas you can never really say that about Boris Johnson. Exactly, and I, I think that does come through, but I don't know that it's necessarily won Corbyn a lot of votes in any case. Um, there was one moment I felt we were teetering on the brink of something that could have been quite dramatic. Corbyn did want to bring up the matter of racist comments made in the past by Boris Johnson. Potentially, that could have been quite inflammatory. But he hesitated. He went so far, what he said was if it, that it was a failure of leadership when you use racist remarks to discredit different people in our society. Well, 
in a way, it wasn't a failure of leadership because what he was actually talking about was some remarks which Johnson wrote a number of years ago when he wasn't leader. So it wasn't about a failure of leadership. But the remarks Johnson made, by any standards, I would have thought would widely be considered unacceptable in a man who wants to be prime minister. He referred to black people as, quotes, pecaninnies with watermelon smiles, and also compared Muslim women uh, wearing their, their face veils uh, to bank robbers and letterboxes. Those are incredibly offensive things to say, and even they, he said them a few years ago. Now, if Corbyn had actually quoted him, I think it would have made life very, very uncomfortable for Johnson. It was interesting to me that Corbyn just seemed to hesitate to go quite that far. I'm not sure if that was a strategic mistake or not. What do you think? I think potentially he was also anticipating um, an attack from the, because as we know, there's, there's the uh, anti-Semitic issue now uh, within Labour, so he was anticipating per perhaps a counterattack um, when it comes to racism on that front. Um, and I think also, uh, I remember there being a statement during the debate about, uh, actually, Johnson mentioned uh, Corbyn's support for the IRA. Yeah. And that was another kind of uh, huge point. But that got the I think, first I think, round of applause right. in, the, in, in the debate. Actually. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Corbyn was, it seemed to me that he was holding off a bit. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, I would have taken the gamble if I'd been him. I think right. he needs actually to be taking a few gambles now because right. I think whichever poll you follow, the gap is still there and it needs to be closed somehow. I, I, I don't know. The... Um, there was something in in the two debates. Look, I've got to admit, I think my comments last time, I, I, and this is incredibly rare, I was wrong. I may have been wrong in that I said that I felt that Johnson had performed less well because Corbyn seemed to be speaking from the heart, had touched on a number of really emotive points to do with homelessness and poverty and the health service and so on, whereas Johnson seemed to be working from a a script provided by his handlers where he just brought every answer back to Brexit. And I said, you know, in my view, therefore, Corbyn won the debate, whatever the polls might have been showing. And in some ways, I still believe that. But strategically, I think maybe I was wrong. It goes against all my own instincts because I sit there listening to Johnson, as you said, Liam, uh, speaking... Uh, not really ever felt from the heart, not really touching the emotions, but simply hammering the same message again and again and again. Corbyn, I felt, came over rather well as a person, as somebody with true convictions and talking about things that mattered to him. But I rather think that in the hard world of politics, and really expanding from what you said earlier, in the hard world of politics, that simple phrase just hammered again and again begins to sink in, however irritating it may be to many of us, I think it's worked. Hate to say it, but I think it's worked. It's, it's the entire campaign strategy as well, which is this is a decision that we need to make before we can start to make other decisions about how the country's run. Mm. And that's the thing that the Conservative Party have hammered home again and again and again. Now, whilst the, the Labour position of we'll renegotiate a better deal than the deal that we have currently, and then we'll have a referendum. And you, and I, as Prime Minister, will be non-partisan in this. 
you can you can understand that entirely as a rational argument going it's for it's we've presented you with two options and it's for you guys to decide what's best and what you want for your country and I'm not going to influence that but it's not a leadership position and and that's also played back to the the narrative of going the only people who will sort this out definitively are the conservative party we need to get brexit done and the number of times johnson brings that back into there um, Corbyn was very embarrassed too, wasn't he? When he was put on, when he was put under, this keeps happening, poor chap. When he's put under pressure of where he stands on Brexit, I mean, you could see he was he was squirming, and, mm. and that's very difficult. The, I just want to say one other thing in this, which is something we're all seeing happening, and I, I think there's a lesson, which is the value of simplicity. Right. And I think that there is a temptation for those of us in the business, some of us who have fantasy doctors or whatever, to think too much and to look for too complex um, solutions and, and too complex arguments. You look over the water, Drew. Um, it's interesting, I was, I was looking at Mr. Trump, who is a matter of constant amazement to many of us that he is so successful. But I was reading the other day that analysts had studied the first 30,000 words that Mr. Trump uttered when he came into office. And what the language he used was significantly more simple and less diverse than any of the past 15 presidents, roughly the language of a seven or eight year old. But interviews that he gave in the 80s and 90s, there he was speaking very articulately, using sophisticated vocabulary, uh, using dependent clauses uh, without losing the thread, using words like inclination, aesthetically, contentious. And they went through and he never uses those words again once he's president. Now, some suggest that is a real sign of cognitive decline. And this is scary because this man is just a step away from the red button. Others say it's cunning and clever and that he understands that his core audience do not want words like aesthetically and contentious being used to them. To be honest, I don't know which it is. I, my sneaky suspicion that it's a bit of both, um, that he's accidentally stumbled into a form of language which works for him. But what he has done is he has developed simple, very simple messages delivered in simple language. And in a way, that's what Johnson has done here with get Brexit done. I think there certainly is something to be said about stadium-style language. Um, uh, it can be very persuasive, you know, take back control, make America great again. You can get the masses to sort of fixate on what seems like something that's quite simplistic, but you can easily uh, elicit emotional reactions that way. Into, uh, it, whereas if you have something that's uh, rather vacuous and you can't get uh, with regard to the psychology, if you can't get minds to focus on that, how are you going to uh, move in a democratic sense? How are you going to get people to move uh, quickly um, and effectively in a, in a democratic sense? So certainly um, Trump uh, has mastered, I think, this what we can call the stadium-style stadium uh, language. But I'll tell you one other thing which uh, I think points a little bit favorably to Mr. Corbyn, is this. The, um, in fact, we were chatting just before the podcast about the likability factors and, and personal favorability. And what were, what were the, the current ratings? Uh, no, 
true, did you? Have? Yeah, the, 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 I think it was they're both negative. pretty bad, aren't yes. they? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think the FT brought out uh, their survey, they found that Corbyn was negative 40%, mm. and whereas Boris Johnson was negative 16%. And, and, so Trump still, is, and Trump has one of the lowest ratings, popularity ratings of any president, but still succeeds. So, but in a way, though, that is the also the danger of a snapshot, because mm. any opinion poll is a point in time in movement. Mm. And actually, to give Corbyn credit, it is interesting that um, Ipsos Mori shows that Corbyn's personal ratings during the campaign have actually improved significantly from a pretty dramatic minus 60 to minus 44. And John Johnson's have slumped from a plus two to that minus 20. So while one may look at it and say, oh yes, that is the point right now and it looks bad. In fact, if you look at the campaign as a whole, it does appear that Corbyn has significantly improved his ratings and Boris has failed to do so. But not enough on either side to really make a difference to the overall campaign. And this this brings back out the other the other um, imagery that we have now in in a parliamentary system that is running an election that is presidential in style. Mm. It's all about Jeremy Corbyn being prime minister or Boris Johnson being prime minister, whereas it's less about you know, re-electing six hundred and fifty MPs of mm. different opinions, different uh, views, different political persuasions. Um, and that gets that gets that seems to have got lost a lot there. Yeah. Do you want this person as your as your leader as your representative internationally? And, and it became a, a that was what the Lib Dems set their policy out on. There, Joe, Joe Swinson was going to be prime minister, which was a bold statement, even more bolder than um, than Lord Steele's return to your constituencyism. Prepare for the <laughs> speech back in. Well, the day. I, I think I said in, in in our last podcast. I mean. It, what a mistake uh, by the Lib Dems. They must so regret it. They, they bet the House on the idea of a presidential campaign. And to have their battle bus with that picture of Joe Swinson on and describing themselves not as the Lib Dems, but as Joe Swinson's Lib Dems, that might have worked if she had turned out to be a megastar on the campaign trail. I'm afraid, though, that the polls seem to indicate that the more people got to see her and know her, the less they seem to like her, which is sad because I think she probably is a, a, a decent and competent woman, but was probably not the right person to be leading this campaign for the Lib Dems. And, and, there, and there we have a, a crux of all this. It, it is Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, mm -hmm. and it's always branded as Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, mm -hmm. Joe Swinson and the Lib Dems. You, you, as we've seen, you know, Johnson's personal view, his personal polling has dropped down. Again, you're, you're back to that tight conservative campaign management of controlling what he says and where he goes, the not doing the Andrew Neil interview, uh, being very careful about what he seeks, and then sticking probably the best message discipline we've ever seen out of Boris Johnson. Hmm. Now, should he have done... I've gone public on a tweet on this, so my, my opinion is out there already, but... Should he have done the Andrew Neil interview? I suspect he did not want to be hit by some of the more scandalous. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that he tried to. He was trying to avoid these kind of questions. Oh yeah, we, we can understand why he and, didn't uh, want to. But right. now, but he took a lot of heat for not doing it. Mm. On balance, was it a good strategy to duck the interview or a, a mistake? 
I think it was a good strategy. I think he had a lot to lose. Yeah, he, he was. He almost had something to lose. And the the bad press that you get from not turning up and Andrew Neil doing one of his famous monologues at the end of the program to to attack you is much better than him failing to answer the uh, the questions. They they they'll have been showing him the Eddie Mayer interview on loop, going, "You don't want to be doing this again." Yeah. But the the, the more important point is. Regardless, should it have been his decision or should all future leaders actually submit themselves to scrutiny by journalists? Mm. Yeah, that'll be an interesting debate for next time round. I mean, but I think we are all in agreement in that case because, yes, when I tweeted, I made the point quite simply reflecting what you guys are saying is that his decision not to do the debate, I think, has hurt him. It, it may have cost him a couple of points, but I think he can spare those couple of points. But as you say... Him, the risk, the potential that something could go badly wrong. Drew, you made the same point. That risk, suddenly if he'd lost six points as a result of something silly, I mean, too much of a gamble. So, okay, who's going to win? What's going to happen on Thursday? Who's won the campaign? Oh, we'll, let, we'll let our American colleagues <laughs> come first. <laughs> uh, I, I think that Boris Johnson has come across uh, as more as more of a persuasive, as more of a charismatic person. I'm not sure how that will translate, um, but I, my sense is that he will win the election. Um, I, I just think that it's very, as we can see with Trump, it's it's quite. Diff- if you've built up your entire um, career, your entire persona, um, as if you as someone who uh, is known for their eccentricities. I think it's very difficult to get rid of that, and that sticks with people. And I, I believe that that will carry Mr. Johnson forward. Okay, what majority? <laughs> I think it's going to be very close. Right. I, I, I can't give the exact. I'm, 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 I probably wouldn't be uh, the best person to, to do that. All right, Liam. I think it will be close. Who's won, why, and what's the majority? <laughs> well. Uh, Interestingly, um, the Conservatives and Johnson are out targeting in the final few days the, um, the Labour uh, marginal seats. Mm, mm. And given that between 10 and 30% of people make up their minds who they're going to vote for during the last few days of an election, which raises another question, why do we have a very long campaign on that basis? Let's just let's get the election done, might be a new campaign slogan. Um, I, I, and the, the other question is, what is victory? Is victory doing better than Theresa May did in when she called the 2017 election? Like victory is having a workable um, majority. Is, victory is having a workable majority. I think they'll get a workable majority. I think they'll be looking at somewhere between 10 and 15 seats. Yeah. I think it, it, it is tightening, it is closing, but I think from the Labour's point of view, not fast enough. I haven't enjoyed the Tory campaign. Um, I felt in some ways as many political campaigns, that it was a dishonest one. But I think I have to admit, and almost reluctantly, that it was probably effective for their limited goals. Um, the gap is interestingly appearing to close. I mean, there, are, there have been two of these giant MRP model uh, surveys done. Um, YouGov did the first one, and uh, that predicted a 68-seat majority. Then. Data Praxis on Tuesday came out with theirs, which is a more recent one. And they'd interviewed half a million people, unlike the usual sort of things that are interviewing, you know, a a thousand or two thousand, interviewing half a million people online. And where the earlier YouGov one was, what, two weeks ago or so, uh, predicting a 68-seat majority, 
the Data Praxis one has now shrunk to 38 seat. Um, and again, as I said earlier, nothing is static. We're in a, a, a time of movement. So I tend to share with you guys the thought that we're looking at a conservative overall majority, but not a particularly comfortable one. The, the next yeah. MRP is out tomorrow. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that, but there is a decline downwards. Mm -hmm. And the more of a view on actively encouraging tactical voting this time, and that would that play a difference in perhaps the Southwest. Mm. The Lib Dem, Lib Dem policy now of kind of going, well, we're not going to be the, the dominant party, but you can make sure that we have enough MPs in there to slow or stop Brexit down. So, well, yes, we'll be back after, Wednesday, no, after Thursday, or I shall anyway, uh, to give a brief summary and just admit what we got wrong. The last little quick thought today, though, for the Apostrophe Preservation Society. Um, John Richards, the 96-year-old retired journalist who founded the Apostrophe Society, has announced he's shutting it down. He blames, or he says, that ignorance and laziness in modern times have won. The apostrophe has been vanishing all over the place, or worse, the apostrophe is being abused and misused quite cruelly all over the place. And maybe the real, the real surrender happened, the, the shocking surrender happened, when Waterstones, Waterstones of all people, dropped their apostrophe. Come on, what a betrayal, Waterstones. <laughs> Give us back your apostrophe. But have they lost the battle? I mean, Boots and Morrisons and Bettys and so on. Um, what do we think? Is the battle lost? Should we have been fighting it harder? Or is there still a chance for the resistance to fight back? Do Americans use apostrophes? I blame oh, yes. Americans mainly for this. <laughs> I think uh, we use them too much. <laughs> we're, we're very sort of emphatic hand gestures, you know. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. So we, we, we tend to, I think we use them over much. <laughs> it apostrophes. Awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, um, yeah, I mean, not necessarily all is lost. I mean, in 2013, the Mid-Devon District Council announced a decision to ban apostrophes uh, from street names. And the, the resistance rose up and, and shamed them into, into reversing their decision, which was, which was wonderful. And, and they fought back. I mean, and good old Sainsbury's, we like them. They're hanging on to that apostrophe. Um, a couple of examples that the Blessed Lynn Truss, I think, was responsible for pointing out, and I think they're wonderful. Um, imagine you go to a kid's playground and there's a big sign, and that sign says, we're here to help. In the old days it said, we're here to help. It's rather sad that it's now, we're here to help. Um, the more fun one was <laughs> residents refuse to be put in bins. Now, if you stick an apostrophe after the residence, it becomes residence refuse to be put in bins. Um, meaning does change with an apostrophe. And, and I was thinking to myself that if I wrote the MPs like a sausage, without an apostrophe, I, I'm talking about the grazing habits in the commons dining room. With an apostrophe before the S, we're talking about a single MP. You know that I'm comparing Michael Gove to a breakfast banger. Apostrophes make a difference to meaning. They're wonderful. How do we fight back? Is there anything that could be done? Uh, social media, tweets, short messaging, the, and the, the dreaded autocorrect have suddenly removed all these things. So it, it's dropped out of modern usage and, and language evolves. But I'm, I'm 
with you. And punctuation of all kinds alters meaning and it should be used. Right. Well, we at Chalgate are committed to the apostrophe. We're also committed to opinion battlegrounds. We are going to be here every two weeks, but in fact, we're going to come back for a very quick summary. Actually, I'll be flying solo on that day, the morning after the election. Uh, so we'll be back then, and I hope you'll be with us again. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Opinion Battlegrounds. Please subscribe to receive the latest episodes, and you can follow us on Twitter at Chelgate or email contact at chelgate.com. Thank you.